Okay, uh, we will have our Ventura campus tuning into this. Let's let them know how much we love them. Big love, big love. And let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We are back in the book of Ephesians, and we are starting a series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) spiritual warfare and the armor of God. We're going to take eight weeks to walk through verses 10 through 8. Excuse me, nine weeks. I added one on. Nine weeks of studying spiritual warfare and the armor of God. So this is an incredibly important time for us. We'll learn in the text today that every single Christian is engaged in spiritual warfare. We have a real enemy who is endeavoring to work real things against us. So we can't just stick our heads in the sand and hope he goes away. Right? We must engage in the battle. But you'll find wonderful hope in the message today. But throughout this whole series, we'll be going in-depth on all sorts of things. Today's just a little bit of an introduction. So I want to do this. If you have questions during the series, I want you to email them to me. And I will, as the Spirit leads, endeavor to answer them. So here's an email address for you. Got a question related to spiritual warfare? Email the battle at realitycarp.com. If you're at the Ventura campus, the battle at realityventura.com. Email me your questions, and if God would allow, and I have any clue as to the answer, we'll try to answer some of those as we go through the series. Spiritual warfare is real, it's gnarly, and when you're dealing with demons, there's a lot of stuff that is just like, I mean, it's demons, right? So it's, it's craziness. So we'll have a lot of questions, and we want to do our best to try to help you with those. Now, let's get to the text. We're going to read the whole passage that we'll be looking at for the next nine weeks. That's verses 10 through 18 of Ephesians 6. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. We'll only deal with verses 10 through 12 in the teaching today, but we'll just read the whole passage to get a feel for it. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this sun view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Amen. Thank you. 
Lord, for this wonderful passage that's before us. Thank you for what you're going to teach us over the next several weeks. Thank you, Jesus, that you are victorious. Thank you, Christ, that you have already won the battle against the enemy. Thank you that you enable us to stand firm against his present schemes. Thank you that there is a coming a day where he himself will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and we ourselves will forever be with you, living in freedom from him and in the fullness of your presence. Thank you for those wonderful things. But in these days, Lord, when we still wrestle and struggle with the schemes of the enemy, we ask that you'd make us wise. We ask that we wouldn't be ignorant of his schemes and that you would teach us to be strong in you and in the strength of your might. And so give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. Give us understanding. Please, Lord, anoint me as I teach and preach for your glory and your purposes. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you'll notice that our artist, Neil Perro, did this wonderful depiction here of the armor of God. Isn't that beautiful? Feel free to come up after church and, and look at it. But uh, he did his homework. We, we believe that stuff is period correct. And this is what the armor that Paul is referring to in this passage more or less would have looked like. And there's lots for us to learn from the armor of God. We won't get to the armor of God today per se. We'll get to it in the following weeks. As I said, for now, we're just going to look at verses 10, 11, and 12. And we have a basic outline for what these verses will teach us today. Here's the outline. The call to strength for the Christian is seen in verse 10. The call to stand against the enemy is seen in verse 11. And the call to struggle or the call to battle is given to us in verse 12. Let's read verse 10 again for the call to strength. Paul writes and says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, When the Apostle Paul says finally here, he's not using it the way that preachers use it. You know when a preacher is nearing the end of the sermon, but they're not really there, but you're kind of wishing they were already there. And so they use this tactic where they say, and finally, or in closing. And generally for those of us who have been listening to a sermon for an hour or so, we're like, Okay, good, finally, okay, so now I can kind of shift my stuff and finally get ready to go to the bathroom in a few minutes, and it's sort of a cue of, okay, we're just wrapping it up now, and let's be honest, we have a tendency in those points to think, okay, good, it's almost done, I can tune out a little bit, but that's not what Paul is doing here, nor is it as though he's writing a letter to you as a friend, and he says at the end, oh, by the way, just a quick little offhanded, the surf was great this week, just thought you'd want to know. So it's not just an offhanded comment. It's not a sort of rhetorical tactic, just, you know, I'm finally, I'm almost done. Stick with me here. It's not that at all. When the Apostle Paul says, and finally, and then moves into this section on spiritual warfare and the armor of God, he is saying this, in light of all that I've said to you already in the book of Ephesians, and all that we have learned about God and his nature and his glory and the work of Christ and us as the recipients and the benefit of his work and what's that accomplish, what that has accomplished for us, in light of all that, stand firm. Be strong 
in the Lord. Now let's remind ourselves of what all that is. What is he referring to when he says finally? Look back in chapter one. I'm going to read now from the New Living Translation because it speaks well. I'm just going to read a little bit, just reminding us of what Paul is saying and finally about in verse three. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united to Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is a plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, We have received an inheritance from God for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Are you guys awake? There ought to be hoorays and hurrahs, yeses and amens when we read that. He picks it up in the second half of verse 13. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Look in chapter two. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God, listen to this. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Look at verse 12. 
in those days, you were living apart from Christ before we put our faith in Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship among the people of Israel. And you didn't know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Look at chapter three, verse 10. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Speaking of our enemy, look in chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Since then, you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former ways of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, imitate God in everything you do, because you are his beloved children. Therefore, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And then verse 18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now those things are what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says, finally, because you are chosen by God from before the foundations of the world, because you have a great inheritance with God, because you're united with Christ through faith, because you've been given the Holy Spirit, because you've been given new life and you're to put on the new self and you're to live in the power of the Holy Spirit who is always transforming us into the image of Christ. Finally, in light of all those glorious things, he says, be strong in the Lord. When he's saying, finally, be strong in the Lord, he means in all of those things. And who God is, is a gracious redeemer, is a wonderful savior, is one who pursued us by love. Christ, who died on the cross in our place, rose from the dead to give us new life, has ascended unto heaven, ruling and reigning, and who is coming again. Christ, our life. Be strong in the Lord. Now in the original Greek language, it's in the passive imperative. Who knows what that means? Nobody, but I do. Here's what it means. <laughs> it means that this is something that is done for us. What the apostle is not saying is, in light of all that wonderful doctrinal truth, try harder to be better. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying in light of who Christ is and what he's done for us, you need to muster up some strength, pull it together and just come on, just be strong. That's not what he's saying. In the Greek, it's in the passive imperative. Passive means it's not something we do. It's not active. It's something that's done to us, for us. We are passive recipients. 
We receive the strength of the Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit in response to doctrinal truth. Paul's not saying, try harder, be tougher, come on, don't be a wimp. When he says, be strong, he's saying, receive the strength of the Lord God Almighty who loves you and died for you, who is coming again to rule and reign on earth. Be made strong in the Lord, he's saying, by the work of the Holy Spirit and who Christ is and what he's done for us. Now, what is important for our understanding there is this. When we're thinking about spiritual warfare and the work of the enemy against the believer that we'll talk about a lot over the next few weeks, and we're told here to be strong in the Lord, we must realize that Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than the devil. Can I get an amen? Amen. That is doctrinal truth. We are not talking about some cosmic power struggle between equal forces, God and Satan. That's not the deal. God is infinitely more powerful than our enemy. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Satan is not. God is omniscient, all-knowing. Satan is not. God is omnipresent everywhere at once, filling the earth with his glorious presence. Satan is not. God is sovereign. Satan is not. God is in control. The enemy is not. God is bringing all things, all of history, every nation, every heartbreak, every difficulty, every injustice to his desired closure for his glory. Satan is not. In the final analysis, when you read the book, you find Satan to be just a tool and a fool. And Christ to be the one who is ruling and reigning. James said it this way, or somebody, 1 John, 1 John, John said it this way, greater is he who is in you, speaking of Christ Jesus, than he who is in the world, speaking of the enemy. Therefore, any study of spiritual warfare or any thought of spiritual warfare is not to bring us fear. Greater is he who is in us, Christ, than he who is in the world, the enemy. So we're not to be fearful of the enemy, right? Therefore, be strong. Be made strong in the Lord. He's infinitely greater. But nor are we to be foolish when it comes to the schemes of the enemy. We're not to be fearful, but nor are we to be foolish for reasons that I would argue are often beyond our understanding. Though Satan has been defeated at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's still allowed to work some degree of work in the world right now. We we know that. We're experiencing that. But it would seem from Scripture that God's got him on a short leash. And there's coming a day the glorious day when God shall be among his people. And the enemy, that serpent of old, will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and there he will be tormented day and night forever and ever, the book of Revelation says. But it's important that we understand why we're waiting for those eschatological things to happen, for the end to come, when every wrong is righted, 
when the enemy is finally vanquished. It's important for us to understand that he is truly a defeated foe now. Speaking of Christ, our Savior, Colossians 2 says this. For in him, on the screen, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, Christ, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. He's a name above every name. He's over all rule and authority, speaking of demonic powers. And then look at verse 15. Speaking of the work of the cross of Christ. When he, God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan and demons, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. You know what Satan had on us? A certificate of debt, a record of wrong that made us debtors to God and made us subject to the wrath of God. We were slaves to sin. But when Christ died on the cross, that certificate of debt was nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. And the power of sin was broken. And the old person who was ruled by the sinful nature died with Christ and was risen to brand new life that we might be dead to sin and alive to righteousness before God in Christ Jesus. When Christ did that on the cross... It says he made a public display of the devil. Do you know what that means? It's an old military sort of phraseology. It means that when one army conquered another army, the general or king or whoever, the leader of that victorious army, would take the leader of the conquered army, throw him on the ground before both armies, and stand on the back of his neck and rub his face into the dirt. That's what it means to make a public display, a public spectacle of the enemy. Do you know that when our sins were wiped away at the cross of Jesus Christ and he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil, that our great king and general, Jesus, stood on the back of the neck of the enemy before all of creation and all of the demons and said, he loses. Do you understand that? He made a public display of them, Satan and his minions. In the Gospels, whenever demons encountered Christ, they were terrified. And there was no struggle, right? It wasn't as Jesus had, as though Jesus had to struggle to cast demons out. With just a word, with just a word, the demons were thwarted. With just a word, they were cast out. With just a word, their work was broken. There was no struggle. Jesus had absolute authority. When we read about it in the Gospels, absolute authority. And then he did the most incredible thing. He delegated his authority to his believers, his followers. So the disciples after him, begin to cast out demons. Sometimes they had difficulties. They're not Jesus after all. (laughs) But what we saw was Christ, the one with all authority, delegating authority to his church, his believers, so that we now, hear me on this, we now have authority in the name of Jesus over the enemy. You understand that? Absolute authority in the name of Jesus over the enemy. It is imperative that every believer understands that. 
We're the ambassadors of Christ, and ambassadors never sent without the appropriate authority. We're aliens and strangers in this world, citizens of heaven. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And we have been given, as the sons and daughters of the King, authority to act in His name over the demonic realm. What does authority do for us? Everything. I want you to think of a traffic cop. A traffic cop does the most crazy thing. He stands in an intersection with traffic coming at him from every direction. That's a crazy job. And yet somehow, when he holds up his hand, everybody stops their giant moving pieces of metal. All he did was hold up his hand. Now, what the traffic cop doesn't have is power. If the car kept coming, guess what? The car wins, right? The car is more powerful than the traffic cop. But what the traffic cop has is not power, but delegated authority. He has the authority of the government behind him so that when he raises his hand, it is the ruling governing party of the land that is saying to the oncoming traffic, you must stop. And so everybody stops. We have been given authority in the name of Jesus. Satan is not more powerful than God or Christ, but he is more powerful than us. It's an oncoming car. But we have authority. Satan has tremendous power. The same metaphor that's used for the strength of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the same metaphor of lion strength is used for Satan. Our foe, 1 Peter 5.8 says, the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Tremendous power and strength. Don't be foolish about this. But we have all the authority of Christ because we are his. And we'll be learning in the next few weeks how to wield that authority. Ephesians tells us that we're to have the power and the authority of Christ. Chapter 1 again, In verse 18, well, I want to start in verse 16. Look what Paul prays. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, God will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now to all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. God's power is working mightily in us. Chapter 3. No, that was chapter 3. I'm sorry. I I was reading chapter 3, but I said chapter 1, huh? (laughs) Happens. That was chapter 3. Now chapter 1. Chapter 1. Verse 18. Paul says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope 
He has given to those he has called. His holy people who are as rich in glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power, God's power, not our power. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above, this is speaking of Satan and demons, any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the person of Christ, in his finished work, there's un limited strength available to the believer. A call to strength that is given through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul finish by telling us that we have strength? After all those glorious things that we talked about, it's because he knew what you know. The Christian life doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's one thing to say, therefore be imitators of God. It's one thing to call us away from drunkenness. It's one thing to call us away from sexual immorality. It's one thing to call us into holy relationships and into forgiveness and laying aside malice and slander. It's one thing to do that. But the Apostle Paul knows that this endeavor to be like Christ in a fallen world doesn't happen in a vacuum. He knows we have tremendous opposition. The enemy is doing everything he can to keep us from growing in our relationship with Christ, and from continuing to benefit from the work of Christ. That's why he gives us in verse 11, the reason for strength. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We'll talk about the armor of God in the coming weeks. There's supply for us to do this. He's going to give us a how of this battle, but I want you to notice these words so that you will be able to stand firm. There is for the believer a call to stand. He says it again in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist. And having done everything to stand firm, verse 14 again, he says, stand firm, therefore. The main thing that I want us to get from this is that we are able to stand against the schemes of the enemy because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Listen, this seems elementary, but this is incredibly important because men and women are falling all over the place. How often do we hear about it? What's going on with so-and-so? Oh, she fell. What's going on with that one pastor or that preacher? Oh, he fell. What's going on with so-and-so that used to be in my community group? Oh, they fell away. What's going on with so-and-so that was walking in sobriety for so long? Oh, they fell off the wagon. What's going on with so-and-so that was clean from pornography online? Oh, they fell back into it. She fell into adultery. He fell back into using. 
He fell away from the Lord. Everywhere around us in the midst of our Christian community, we hear about people falling. But the scripture is telling us that we ought to be standing. Stand firm, therefore. It would seem to me that the incredible claim of the Apostle Paul, the wonderful promise of the scriptures, is that we don't have to fall. Why? Because it has to do with Christ and who he is and his work on our behalf and his power and his power at work in us and the authority he's been given us so that we don't have to fall. You know who else knows this? The devil. He knows what the scriptures say. Listen to this promise in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Listen to that. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Stand firm, strong in the strength and the might of the Lord. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. The reason why we often have so much difficulty with the devil is we do very little to resist him. He suggests a thought to us which is deviant or he gives an opportunity which is perverse or he tells us about our entitlement and how we ought not to forgive that person or he tells us that just a little bit isn't too bad. Or he tells us that we can do it on our own. Or he tells us it's okay to be with that group. He tells us these things and we go, really? Oh, okay. We're like Eve in the garden. When Satan came to tempt her and she said, well, God said I shouldn't eat from that tree. And Satan goes, really? Half God really said, he's just trying to keep something from you. And there is a great scheme of Satan to make God look cruel and unkind and like a taker when he's actually the most loving, compassionate giver beyond all imagination. God is just trying to keep something from you. And so, so we agree with this in our sinful nature and a sense of entitlement. Instead of resisting the devil, we give in to the devil. Listen, we are able, because Christ is our king and we belong to him, to stand firm. And the promise is, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we have been given the power and the person of the Holy Spirit residing in us and coming upon us with fresh power to stand takes a little resolve, takes a little bit of faith, takes a little bit of believing the word of God to say, no, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not just going to do that. I'm not going to follow after my flesh. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, we're told to be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. Don't give in. Don't go along. Don't be naive to what he's trying to do. Stand firm. Resist him, firm in your faith. 
We have a call to strength. We have a call to stand. And, and we'll have the how of how we do that as we look at the spiritual armor in the, week to, in the weeks to come. But Paul also knows that it's not always as easy as it seems. So we have a call to the struggle in verse 12. Verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, when he says all those things toward the end, rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Heavenly places means the unseen realm, the spiritual world, right? There is a a realm that we don't see that is as real as everything that we see, right? If we don't get that, we're, we're, we're real naive Christians. There's an unseen realm where Satan is at work. And when he gives up those rundown, all those different names, I don't think that he's given us necessarily a a hierarchical organization of demonic powers. I think he's just doing what the Apostle Paul loves to do. He's being rather verbose. And he's just saying the same thing over and over again in a few different ways because he wants us to get this point. We have a real enemy. So he says it in a few ways. Rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. Just using synonyms to talk about Satan and his demons. And he says that this is the real enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There is an unseen realm. Now, the unseen realm, as we know, manifests itself so often in the seen realm, right? God is working by the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian in the unseen realm. But the Holy Spirit is working in you, a work of faith, a work of sanctification, right? A work of humility, a work of trusting God and enjoying Jesus and growing in him. And that comes out in the seen realm. That comes out through flesh and blood. We can tell, wow, she's growing in sanctification. He's growing in holiness. He's on mission. He's a transformed person. There's a work happening by God in the heavenly places, the unseen realm, but it manifests itself, hopefully, in flesh and blood. It's the same with the work of the enemy. It's going on the unseen realm, but so often it manifests itself in the seen realm amongst people in governments, in laws, in internet content, in movies, in relationships, in friends and in foes, in non-Christians and even Christians. The work of the enemy, though it happens in an unseen realm, manifests itself so often in the seen realm, in our lives. We have a real enemy. And he has a real enemy. And Satan's real enemy is God. God is the one that he hates. But we've already talked about God's absolute authority over the enemy. There's nothing that Satan can do to God directly. And if he can't mess with God directly, guess who he's going to mess with? Who God loves most. The beloved of God. You, the believer. The Christian, if he can't get to God, then he's going to endeavor to get to you. 
And if Satan cannot, and scripture is explicit on this, if Satan cannot ultimately thwart the work of God and the plans of God, then he will simply do everything that he can to keep us from experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. He'll do everything that he can to rob us of joy, to rob us of peace, of holiness, purity, walking close to Jesus, of wholeness in relationships. He'll do everything that he can to keep us from forgiving others because Christ said, you don't forgive others, you're not going to experience my forgiveness. Oh. His enemy is God. His target is us. Stand firm, therefore. Be strong, in the Lord and the strength of his might. He has not left us alone. He has given us the full armor that we'll talk about and the power of the Holy Spirit and the doctrinal truth of our standing before him and the promises of his coming again. But it is in this life a struggle. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If you, if you spend your time just fighting with people and fighting against governmental powers and wickedness just on a merely horizontal level, you'll never get to it. There's demonic forces behind governments, behind regimes, behind broken relationships, behind bad content, so on and so forth. But we do have a real struggle. This is a call to battle. Now, it's not the kind of battle like America has fought recently. Most of them have been far off. Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, we, we sit here and we turn on the news every once in a while and we, we see what's happening in the battle. We got others that are fighting it for us. Thank you, God, for them. Sometimes the battle gets closer to home. Pearl Harbor, boy, that was getting close. The World Trade Centers, yeah, that, was, that was a little bit closer. But most of us, thank God as Americans, have never experienced the kind of battle Paul's talking about. When he uses the word struggle, it's the word that was used in that culture for hand-to-hand combat. It was wrestling. It was grappling. It was biting and holding and twisting. Our wrestling is not merely against flesh and blood, but it is against the evil one. This is not a battle that's far off that someone else fights. This is a battle in which we are engaged in. This is written to every Christian. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood only, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. We have here a call to battle. Now, some people like one of my best friends sitting over here, are oblivious to the battle that's going on. And that's a gift. Other people in the church are like super tuned into the battle. And that's a gift, right? Sometimes you're like, oh, I, I cut my pinky. And someone's like, we got to pray, that's the enemy. I don't know, I just think I cut my pinky. But maybe it is. Other people, there's like demons flying around the room and they're like, hey, what's for lunch? (laughs) Everything's cool, right? (laughs) 
C.S. Lewis said this in Screw Tape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve on their existence. The other is to believe and feel an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, I'm not saying that those people within the church fall into that description. But we do tend oftentimes to err one side or the other, ignoring the possibility of spiritual warfare or blaming everything on the devil. And Satan loves it when we live in extremes. The Bible brings us a little bit back toward the center. Christ rules and reigns, but there is a struggle. And we have tremendous weapons. Second Corinthians 10 says, our weapons of warfare are divinely powerful. Speaking of prayer, they have power with God. So, in what way then, if the enemy is truly coming against us, in what way is he doing so? There's three areas where Satan will generally try to tempt us. And I'm, I'm beginning to close here. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> Satan will endeavor to tempt us in the area of passions, possessions, and position. Passions, possessions, and position. He's incredibly cunning. He's been around for a long time. He's smart. He knows how to work against a Christian, but he doesn't have a whole lot of new tricks. Passions, possessions, and positions. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, passion, and that it was a delight to the eyes, possession, I want it, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, position, I want to be exalted. She took from its fruit and ate. Fast forward thousands of years to Christ being tempted in the wilderness. The tempter came and said to him, if you're really the son of God, command these stones to become bread. He'd been fasting for 40 days. Surely he was hungry. He appealed to his passions. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're really the son of God, throw you down and angels will rescue, throw yourself down and the angels will rescue you. Position, do something amazing so that everyone will look and see. Show us something awesome. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Possessions. Satan is always endeavoring to appeal to either our passions, base ones like hunger and different needs and comfort, lust, or our want for possessions or our desire for greater position. And it's the same at the end, 1 John. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, passions, The lust of the eyes, possessions, and the boastful pride of life, position, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. 
What Satan does is he tempts us. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted, but it's a sin to give in to temptation. Scripture tells us to stand firm when we are tempted. We will all be tempted. I want you to think about the way that you're being tempted. I want you to realize that it's going to fall into one of these areas. Passions, possessions, or position. Therefore, you can identify it and begin to stand firm in the finished work of Christ. And then I want you to remember 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, No temptation has come against you except for that which is common to man. We all get tempted in that same way. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to endure. He's put limits on what the devil can do in tempting us. God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to endure, but with the temptation will provide the way out also, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so that we may be able to stand. Satan is always tempting us in the area of our passions and position and possession. God has put limits on temptation and we are called to be strong in the strength of his might that we might stand. But the, 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 the first clue is to begin to identify the way that he's tempting us. And he will always attack us in these three areas. Doctrine, identity, and community. What is true about God, what is true about you, the Christian, and what is true about others. Satan is always endeavoring to malign the truth about Jesus Christ. He wants the world to believe wrong things about Jesus. Why do you think there's such a battle concerning the name of Jesus Christ? Why do you think the name of Jesus Christ has become a byword and a cuss word? Why do you think you could say the name of any other religious figure in any public sphere and have it applauded? But the moment you want to talk about Jesus, people get uncomfortable because it's a name above all names. Because there is power in the name of Jesus and in his person and his work. So the enemy is always working in the world to create false ideas and false doctrine about who Jesus is. That's why, brothers and sisters, you have to have a plan to saturate yourself in the word of God in 2014. Because the enemy is doing everything he can to give you misunderstandings about God. When trials come, he wants us to think that God is far off that God is removed, that God is cold, that God is mean, that God is not in control. Satan will tell you those things when your children are dying, when you're diagnosed with cancer, when your marriage is falling apart. The truth about God is he's never far off, that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he's always with us, that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, that he's sovereign and in control and he's good. Satan will always be attacking us in that area, telling us the opposite. And then he'll attack us in our identity. He will tempt us to sin, and when we sin, he will accuse us. He tempts us to sin, and then we sin, and he says, look at you. You call yourself a Christian. God can never accept you anymore. You're not the beloved son of God. You're not the beloved daughter of God. You're not going to inherit all things in Christ Jesus. Look at what you've done. He always attacks our identity as the beloved of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He always wants us to feel as though we're condemned by God. He doesn't want us to experience grace. He wants us to experience condemnation. He doesn't want us to experience mercy. He wants us to live in fear of God. He doesn't want us to be sure in our salvation. He wants us always thinking that God is mad with us and disappointed with us and that we've blown it this time beyond repair. 
That is why you must have a plan in 2014 for saturating yourself in the word of God because it will tell you otherwise. And then you always attack us in the area of community. I read a book about the Beatles recently, speaking of Satan. (laughs) I read a book about the Beatles and... You know, for a period of time, the four of them were as close as four humans could ever be. And then it all fell apart. You know the story. But in that book, it it talks about this fact that when they were fighting, someone like Ringo would come to Paul and say, well, it's always you and John. And Paul would say, me and John? I thought it was you and John. And then they go to John, it's always you and Ringo. And John would go, Me and Ringo, we're buddies. I thought it was Ringo and George. And then George would say, no, it's always Paul and... And then they were pointing fingers back and forth, right? Because in the middle of the night, here's what Satan does. Satan implants in our minds bad thoughts about people we're called to love. Doesn't he do that? And where does he do it most? In the Christian community. Why? Because Jesus prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. And the moment that Jesus uttered that prayer, Satan declared war against unity amongst believers. And so he's got you up in the middle of the night thinking about her. Oh, I can't believe she said that. When I see her, I'm going to say this. And I totally deserve this. And she doesn't deserve that. Oh, I know they're thinking this. Oh, I know they're doing that because of this. Is it only me? I thought it was you and Paul. (laughs) Christian community is so important because it images the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were made in that image for loving relationship. So Satan does everything he can to tear us apart. We must stand firm and resist him and be strong in the strength of his might. Because though these are difficult days, and we'll talk about much more, we must remember, Jesus has won. Jesus is winning, and Jesus always wins. And the nearer we are to him, the greater our experience of his present victory over darkness. Lord, that you would draw us near to you. Thank you, Christ. You are risen and victorious. Thank you that we are yours. Thank you that your very power, the person of the Holy Spirit, resides in us. Thank you that you are bringing all things to your desired course. And we need not live in fear, though we struggle against a real enemy. Teach us to be wise. Enable us to be strong. Show us the areas of our passions and possessions and positions that are being appealed to demonically. Begin to lead us into what is true about you and true about us and true about others. Thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that you win. Thank you that we are yours and that all things are subject to your authority.